So at Grace Bible Church, if you're new, you need to know that we talk all the time, dare I say incessantly, about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a disciple maker. Now, if, if you want just real quick definitions, there's probably more to it. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. And a disciple maker, simply put, is someone who comes alongside of another person to help them learn more and more about what it means to follow Jesus. So we we have disciples, followers of Jesus, and then we have disciple makers who help other people learn what it means to follow Jesus. Today, I want to ask a question that I think is critically important to Grace Bible Church. What exactly does it take to be a great disciple maker? Now, let me tell you how important I think this question is. If you're not asking that question on a consistent basis, you are likely a disobedient Christian. What exactly does it take to be a great disciple maker? This is not optional. This is central to what it means to be a Christian. Jesus, right before he ascended to the right hand of God to reign in heaven forever, said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the teachings that I have taught you. Now, if you hear that from your Lord and you don't go, what does that look like? How do I do that well? Something's wrong. It's not an option. It absolutely, they call it the great commission for a reason. And And so we're going to ask that question, what exactly does it take to be a great disciple maker? I'll tell you right now, the text that we're looking at isn't going to give you all of the answer. But if you don't get what is part of this text as an answer, you'll never do it well. So let's turn, if we could, to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to warn you in advance. As I read this passage, you're likely not going to see the answer immediately in this passage. It's going to take a little bit of explanation, but let's look at it. This is an incredible passage. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, him being Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, also named Peter, you'll see that later, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, this large catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. For now, from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, 
they left everything and followed him. So we're asking and answering the question, what exactly does it take to be a great disciple maker? In order to understand this passage, just in general and also as it relates to that question, what does it take to be a great disciple maker? I think you have to understand a little bit more than we do now Peter and Jesus' relationship at this point in their lives. When I first looked at this passage, I thought this has to be the very beginning of their relationship, right? First of all, it's chapter 5 out of 24. I mean, at best, we're just over one-fifth of the way there. But then you start looking at at the book of Luke, and Luke 1 through 3 is basically the, the story of Jesus' birth, and then John the Baptist in a kind of a crazy genealogy. And so you're not really getting to Jesus' adult life until chapter four. And so this is the beginning of chapter five. It's gotta be the very beginning uh, of their relationship together. Furthermore, you have Jesus in verses nine and 10 inviting Peter out of a career fishing and into a ministry career. That's gotta be at the beginning, right? That's what I thought. But then there was something really odd about this text that made me dig a little bit deeper. I I presumed that I understood this text to be the very beginning of their relationship. But look at verses 10 and 11. And Jesus, I'm sorry, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, this great catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, that was weird to me. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Why is that Jesus' first reaction? Have you, have you thought about that at all? Like, they're, they're just getting to know each other, and there's a great catch of fish, and Peter is like, get out of here. Like, I, I shouldn't be around you. I'm not saying that's not a correct response. When, when you encounter the perfect and holy God, and, and you're a sinner, that's probably right, but is it what you lead with? Because there's a lot of other people who met Jesus at the first and they didn't say, hey, I shouldn't be around you. And and so this seemed to me a little bit out of place. I mean, there are other responses that Peter could have made when Jesus gives him this huge catch of fish. He could have said something like, you are the sovereign God of the universe and your sovereignty clearly goes all the way to the Sea of Galilee and the fish therein. Thank you. He could have said that. That would have been totally natural having an abundance of fish now in his boat. He could have said that if he's a little bit less verbose, if he's a little less theological. He could have said, hey, thanks for all the fish. This is going to pay the bills for a long, long time. Could have said that. But he doesn't. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That, to me, screams there's got to be a backstory. There's got to be more to this story. It turns out, By the time we get to Luke chapter 5, Peter knows Jesus pretty well. And and I figured this out, by the way. I'm just going to give a plug for this book. I don't think this is a book that everyone should go and buy. It's called A Harmony of the Gospels by Robert Thomas and Stanley Gundry. But it, it basically puts all the gospels and all the stories together on a timeline so that we can see what's happening relative to other gospels and what's in, in those gospels. And so it's a really interesting book. And I learned some things this week about where we are in the story of Peter and Jesus' relationship by the time we get to, John, or sorry, to Luke chapter 5. They met, you might remember this from the book of John, in Bethany beyond the Jordan. We throw that map up real quick? 
Bethany beyond the Jordan. So you can see the Sea of Galilee if you can read that at all. It's the little sea, not the tiny little one way up, but, but the little one up above the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the one at the very bottom. So the Sea of Galilee there, if you come down right to that purple area, the top of that purple area called Perea, that's basically just a little above that is Bethany beyond the Jordan or across the Jordan. So that's where Peter and Jesus meet. We know that because in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is hanging out and doing ministry in, in Bethany. And so he sees Jesus, remember, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And the disciples on the second day jump up and start following him. Long story short, that's how Peter ends up meeting Jesus. Now, after that, he's going to go from Bethany beyond the Jordan over due west of the Sea of Galilee to that little place called Cana. It's in the region of Galilee. So then he goes to, to Cana, and you guys remember this from John chapter 2. He turns water into wine, and everyone thinks that that's like, oh, Jesus being relevant. He drinks, you know, how cool. <laughs> totally terrible understanding of that text. It's not what's going on. Not that drinking's bad, but that's just not exactly what's going on at all. Nonetheless, he's traveled a good way from Bethany beyond the Jordan over to, to Cana. Then Jesus is going to go, and this is all with Peter, by the way, he's going to go to Capernaum. Capernaum is a little town on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And then after that, he's going to go all the way down to Jerusalem, which if you look at the Dead Sea down at the bottom and go due west or left, that's basically going to be where Jerusalem is. That's a long trek, and Peter and Jesus are doing it together. When he goes to Jerusalem, by the way, that's when Jesus turns over the money maker or the money changers' tables. He kind of goes crazy a little bit, and he also talks to Nicodemus and says, "If you're not willing to be born again, you can have no part of me." And Nicodemus is like, "Born again? I can't go into my mother's womb. What are you talking about?" Jesus, is like, with the Spirit, that's going to have to happen, and you're going to have to figure that out. And and then he kind of goes off and we don't hear from him for a while. And he also does John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believed in him would not perish, have eternal life. And then after that, he's going to go from Jerusalem to a place called Salim, and then Sachar. And Sachar is in the middle of Samaria. You can see that big blue area right in the middle. Sachar is right in the middle of that, and that's the Samaritans. And you've got the woman at the well who's hanging out with Jesus in the middle of the day because she's kind of a bimbo and she doesn't go with the women who have, are people of good standing in the morning and the evening. She goes right in the, the heat of the day and Jesus tells her about who he is and she goes and tells all the people of Sachar and they all become followers of Jesus, these Samaritans. It's a really cool story. That's John chapter three. All of that is happening I'm sorry, that's John chapter 4. All of that is happening before Luke chapter 5, and Peter is with Jesus through all of that. Then they go back to Galilee. That's that northern region up there, kind of the pur purplish region up in the north. He goes to Cana, and he heals a royal official's daughter who is in Capernaum, so he's not even present when he does it, which shows that he has range. And then after that, he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and when he goes to Nazareth, he reads the book of Isaiah, and then he closes, and he goes, I'm that guy. And like, it stirs up quite a bit of trouble. And then he goes back to Capernaum. He's always going back to Capernaum, it seems like. And he calls his officials, uh, sorry, he calls his disciples officially, and he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. That is not what's happening in Luke chapter 5. That's actually happened before Luke chapter 5. And then after that, he's going to heal Peter's mother-in-law. 
She has a high fever. He heals her so that she can get up and serve him. And then while also in Capernaum, he's going to cast out a bunch of demons and he's going to heal a bunch of other people. And then he's going to take a whole nother tour, both of Galilee and Judea, which is that lower southern section. So Jesus is all over the place and Peter's with him. That's what you need to know. In in fact, by the time we get to Luke chapter 5, depending on which scholar you're talking to, you have Peter with Jesus between 12 and 18 months. That's a lot of travel. That's a lot of time together. Imagine what that travel looks like. You're not going in a car. You're not going in a train, on a plane, on a bike. You're hoofing it with Jesus. Dusty roads, walking. It's a lot of time to get to know each other. They've been together at least 12 months. At least 12 months. Peter has seen Jesus do all sorts of incredible things. All of this should make you curious, right? You you should be going, wait a second, I don't understand. Why is Peter back fishing? Why when we get to Luke chapter 5, is Peter back on the stinking fishing boat. Jesus has already called him away from the fishing boat, and now he's back on the fishing boat. Somewhere along the way, Peter has left, some would say abandoned Jesus, and gone back home. And gone back home. We don't know why. None of the Gospels tell us why Peter left Jesus in the midst of this whirlwind ministry. We could speculate, maybe it's all the travel. That's a lot of travel. I mean, it's great to travel with Jesus, but you're walking a long way with Jesus. Maybe Peter didn't totally have the same vision for ministry that Jesus had. We know that in Mark chapters 8 and 9, Jesus says, hey, just so you disciples know, I'm going to be crucified and resurrect three days later. Peter comes to Jesus and goes, That's not the way it has to go down. You can dominate. Remember what Peter says? Get behind me, Satan. Maybe Peter at this point is frustrated that every time the crowds start to get rowdy and say, let's make Jesus our political Messiah, Jesus goes and hides. Maybe Peter just doesn't get it. They have a difference in philosophy of ministry. Not Not the last time that would happen. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe ministry just didn't turn out to be the cash cow that Peter expected it to be when he left the fishing nets. He's like, I got to go make some coin. And he goes back to his boat. We we don't really know, but whatever the reason, chapter 5 of the book of Luke starts with Peter back at his boats. And if you look at verse 5 of chapter 5, you're going to see that he hadn't been catching any fish, at least not the night before Jesus shows back up. He's been out all night trying to catch fish, and it's been woefully unsuccessful. So you can imagine how Peter must have felt when he's struck out all night catching fish, and here comes Jesus, the guy he abandoned. The guy who healed his mother-in-law and cast out demons and healed all these other people, and and he left them. And here comes Jesus with crowds of people who are seemingly delighted to follow him. 
And you got to expect that, that Peter's sitting there going, I wish I had a lot of fish. I, I wish I was anywhere but right here. I wish I was anybody but who I am. And then just when really awkward becomes excruciating, Jesus asks Peter, the guy who abandoned him, to row him out so that Jesus can more effectively preach to the crowds that are swarming him. And can, can you imagine what you talk about? Say they're going 30, 40, 50 yards out so that Jesus can sit on the edge of the boat and, and talk over the water to the crowds. Th think about what you talk about while Peter is rowing the boat. It's a big boat, so it doesn't go quickly. Whether it's 30 yards or 50 yards, it takes a while. What do you do with small talk there? Hey, Jesus, um, how's, how's the ministry going? Like, super big elephant in the room, right? I mean, just, you feel bad about yourself. You don't know what to say. It's just brutal. And Jesus teaches. You can look at it in the passage. It says he teaches, but it doesn't emphasize what he teaches. The teaching is not what this passage is about. Jesus teaches and then says, let's go out a little further and drop your nets. Now, Peter should have known better than to talk back. Peter's seen Jesus do a lot of things at this point, but Peter, nonetheless, a little bit passive-aggressive, says, look, we've been out all night, haven't caught anything, if that's what you're trying to prove, but if you say it, I'll do it, whatever. And he goes out, and you know the story, there's this abundance of fish such that another boat is called out and it, it almost sinks both of them. Jesus providing abundant fish when Peter had chosen fish over Jesus is crazy grace. That's what's going on in this passage. You, you don't get it if you think they're at the beginning of their relationship, if you understand the backstory and, and Peter has left Jesus at this point, then you start to understand, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what an amazing act of grace this is. And so you, then you can understand in verse 8 when Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That is Greek for, I don't deserve to know you. I, why would you do this? Why, why would you come back to Capernaum? Why would you pick me to, to use my boat so that you could teach? Why would you give me fish? I don't even deserve to be in your presence. Now we can answer the question, what does it take to be a great disciple maker? Now we understand from the context what's going on. What does it take to be a great disciple maker? It takes relational tenacity. Do you know what relational tenacity is? Relational tenacity means you're not going to give up on people even if they've given up on themselves. That's what it means to be relationally tenacious. Peter says, I shouldn't be around you. Jesus says, not so fast. I still have plans for you, great plans for you. I believe in you even if you don't believe in yourself. It also takes a willingness to forgive when people flake out. Here's the deal. I'm going to flake out. 
you're going to flake out. Every single one of you is going to flake out. It is part of the human condition. We flake out. We do. If you're not able to extend a grace similar to the grace that you have received to other people when they sin against you, if you're not able to demonstrate the grace that you yourself have received by extending grace, you'll never be a good disciple maker. It, it, it will just never go well for you. People will disappoint you. You'll end up basically just saying, to hell in a handbasket with the whole church. They just don't get it. And you'll end up smug and self-righteous and isolated. And it happens with Christians all the time. You have to be able and willing to forgive people, to believe in them even when they don't believe in themselves. And it also takes an ability to see a person for what he will be as opposed to what he currently is. That's, that's probably a result of the other two. But to be able to see a person for what he will be, what Christ is making him into rather than what he currently is, that is a prerequisite for a great disciple maker. That's, that's what makes us tenacious in some ways. I call that having the eyes of Christ. I, I want you to know, I pray for my kids incredibly consistently that they would have the eyes of Christ. Will, Rebecca, and Annie Kate, 2018 and 12 years old, all of them, I always pray for the eyes of Christ because I know that people will hurt Will, Rebecca, and Annie Kate. No matter what stage of life they are, as they grow up, it is always a good prayer to pray for the eyes of Christ. And I'll tell you why. People will hurt them. They can dismiss them. They can write them off. And they can live in relational isolation. Or my prayer will be effective and they will look at the hurt that that person has caused and see the hurt within them. And, and they will see that God can minister to that hurt or that insecurity or that selfishness or whatever it is that causes the pain my kids are experiencing. And they will respond not with anger but with compassion with compassion and with mercy and all these other godly attributes. And they will love them through that and they will have friends for life because they'll be tenacious. They'll have the eyes of Christ. I pray that for my kids. I pray it for me. I, I have lived a charmed life and I have incredible community. But there have been some occasions when people have hurt me and they've hurt me deeply. And I can feel sometimes, on, it's weird when it comes, but I can feel bitterness creeping in. And, and what I have to do is I have to say, Lord, give me the eyes of Christ for the people who have hurt me the deepest. That I might hope for them that your grace would transform them and I would believe that for them and I would pray that for them even though they have hurt me. It is the best thing I can do for me. It is also the best thing I can do for them. The eyes of Christ is a great prayer to pray. I pray that for Grace Bible Church. There, is, there are relational bombs that, if we don't have the eyes of Christ, go off all through our church all the time. And that's what creates gossip and that's what creates slander and all these other things. It's because we don't have the eyes of Christ for other people. We don't extend grace to them. We, we extend condemnation, hurtful thoughts. 
in the eyes of Christ is the deal, I'm telling you. Relational tenacity, forgiveness, and the eyes of Christ. You might be asking, how do I get some of that? Where, where do I get it? I'll tell you where you don't get it. You don't get relational tenacity, forgiveness, and the eyes of Christ from a high view of man or some sort of worldly optimism. That's not where it comes from. If, if you have a high view of man, people are inherently good, not true. Those thoughts will be crushed through the stuff of life if, if that's what you're bringing forward as, as grace, as the basis for grace. Just not going to happen. Relational tenacity, forgiveness in the eyes of Christ don't come from a high view of man or a worldly optimism. They come from a high view of God and his amazing grace. That's the only way you yourself will ever be gracious. It's not because you think well of other people. People are going to disappoint you. The Bible is clear about that. We are sinners. We are wrecked by sin. But God's grace is amazing. God's grace is sufficient. Ultimately, the question is going to be this. Is God great enough to repair what is broken? That's the question you have to answer for yourself and as you think about other people. Is God's grace sufficient to repair what is broken? That's true for yourself. That's true for the people you live around. That will impact everything about your relationships. Every single relationship you will ever have will be impacted by your answer to that question. Is God's grace enough to repair what is broken? If the answer is yes, you will extend grace. If you think so highly of God and so highly of his grace, you will be gracious. But if you do not think highly of God and highly of his grace, I promise you, I don't care what you have convinced yourself is true of mankind, you will not be gracious. There is no way. Grace, and this is such a stupid cultural misconception, grace doesn't excuse or ignore sin. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I'm going to be gracious by, by not bringing up somebody's sin. That is you using grace to hide so, so that you don't have to have a difficult conversation. Grace doesn't excuse or ignore sin. It actually empowers us that we might confront people with genuine love, that we might confront them in their sin like Jesus does here because he genuinely loves Peter and he says, I'm not done with you. So I won't just ignore it. I won't turn a blind eye. I'm going to confront you, but not in vengeance. It's because I love you so much. I want to be restored to you. And grace also helps us sin less, by the way. Did you know that? Sometimes we, we say in pop Christianity, oh, the grace of God, you know, all my sin doesn't really matter. I've got fire insurance. This way, I can live like a total hypocrite and I'll just say, glory be to God and his grace. Where did we get that? Romans says the grace of God leads us to repentance. The grace of God empowers us to holy living. It doesn't excuse us to continue in sin. Come on. You know better. We should all know better. Look at verses 10 and 11. And Jesus said to Simon, after he has kneeled down and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus says to him, Don't be afraid. 
from now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus saying, don't be afraid, for now on you're going to be catching men, is a ludicrous conveyance of grace. Them leaving everything and following Jesus is absolutely the result of grace's empowerment. That, that's the point of this passage. There's a, a word in Japanese called kintsukuri. Kintsukuri means golden repair, and it started as an artistic expression. It's the art of restoring broken pottery with gold so that the fractures are literally illuminated. So you break some you know, pottery piece, and instead of just trying to patch it and, and disguising or hiding the brokenness of it, you use gold and it magnifies, it illuminates the fracture. As a philosophy, Kintsukuri has come to celebrate the imperfections of an integral part of a story. It, it, it makes it something not to be disguised. Like the, these things that are wrong, we, we don't try to hide them. We don't ignore them. We fix them, but we let the fix be magnified. The artist believes that when something has suffered damage and therefore has a history, it becomes more beautiful and strong. This is a disciple-making principle. Think about this concept of kintsukuri as it applies to Peter. This isn't going to be the last time that Peter abandons Jesus, right? You, you, this should be a pattern that you're seeing in Peter's life. He, he leaves and he goes back to fishing and then he comes back and he says, hey, you, don't, you can be a conquering king. Get behind me, say, okay, I'm gonna hang in there. I'm gonna hang in there. And then Jesus says, I'm gonna be crucified here. And, and Peter says, everybody else might deny you. I will never deny you. Yeah, you're gonna deny me three times in the next 24 hours. And then Jesus resurrects and Peter's ashamed. And what does Jesus do? In love, he finds them again on the shore. And over a charcoal fire, he restores them. He, he acknowledges the sin and says, I forgive you. You're still going to be my man. You're going to be the rock upon which I found my church. Your teachings are going to affect the world forever. And, and it's, it's because of your sins and the grace that I will show you in the midst of them. It's kinsakuri. God uses then the tenacious love of a disciple maker to create strength out of failure. That's, that's what God uses. That's true when God himself does it, as Jesus does to Peter here, it's also true when God himself does it through us. It's what makes us great disciple makers. That's not the only key to being a disciple maker. But if you don't have this key, you will not be a disciple maker. Like this is bedrock for effective disciple making. You have to have relational tenacity. You have to have a capacity to extend forgiveness, and you have to have an ability to see people with the eyes of Christ. That those are requisite qualities. 
that all come when we encounter the grace of God personally. When, when we have encountered God's mercy and his forgiveness and his unconditional love given to us through the finished work of Jesus, if we have believed that, it is ours to give it as well. Let's pray. Father, help us not just to talk glibly about grace, but Father, I pray instead that as we enter into relationships with people and disciple-making relationships with people, Lord, there's so many applications even in marriage, that the grace that you have given to us would be manifest in how we love each other in our sin. Father, I pray that we would be a peculiar people because of a supernatural ability to extend the grace that we have received in community. Father, help that mark the rest of each of our lives. Help that mark my life, Lord. I pray that we would glorify you at every turn along the way in our relationships, and that we'd give you all glory, power, and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is for you. It's for me. It's, it's for all of us who have believed. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us not to see the grace of God as, as some sort of trivial thing that excuses sin. Help us, help us not to be glib about the grace of God, Father. Lord, I, I pray instead that we would see the grace of God as so powerful that it emboldens us to lovingly confront people in their sin that we might be restored relationship in relationship. Father, I pray that we would see the grace of God as so powerful that, that those who have fallen far from you uh, could immediately, because we believe in your power, be restored to you by repentance 
by reconciliation, by, by the grace that you have extended to us and all of us who have believed. Father, I pray that we would be great disciple makers. I, I pray that we would so live in the experiential reality of your grace that, that it would be a delight for us to identify with your son Jesus as we extend it to other people. And I pray that you would be glorified in all of our actions, in all of our days. Amen.